Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi everyone and welcome to Racing Lives. My name is Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot, and in this podcast I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today has been working in sports television for almost half her life. She was studying before that, so it's safe to say that she has lived her entire adult life either behind or in front of a professional broadcast camera. From Sky Sports and the BBC to CNN, my guest has been involved in creating coverage for every major sporting event for at least 15 years. She has done this passionately and diligently, bringing us interviews with almost every sporting great. Away from the camera, she's extremely passionate about children's charities, officially supporting Sparks Charity, Great Ormond Street and Bliss Charity. And on a personal note, has been one of my lockdown heroes, encouraging me to work out most mornings through an incredibly supporting online group that we formed back in March 2020 to keep ourselves and a handful of motorsport colleagues motivated when we needed it the most. My guest today is the amazing Amanda Davis. Oh, I, I think I think the motivators need a bit more motivation. I'm not sure how many of us are still going. We were uh, in 2020. We're a bit more quiet. You're still going really, really well. I'm going, but I'm not posting about it. And I've switched to a gentler morning routine at the moment. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine definitely aren't happening in the mornings anymore. It, it's patchy, I think it's fair to say. Um, but yeah, I think we're approaching 21 with a the mantra of being kind hey <laughs> absolutely also I feels like it's a marathon not a sprint and I think lockdown one felt like yeah it's fine it's a sprint we'll be fine we can power through this um yeah it's gone on for the very long haul Amanda I like to start every single interview with one specific question but unfortunately I think it's going to sell you short because your role and your career is a lot bigger than motorsport so I'll still ask it but feel free to expand, um, which is, Amanda, when and where did your racing life actually begin? <laughs> Motorsport for me was something that I fell into. And actually, that there's not much of my career I can say that that's been the case in that I consider, you know, 
myself one of the fortunate people in life in that I knew from a really early age I wanted to be a sports journalist and when I say from a really early age that's was kind of 12 13 and I took deliberate steps and absolutely did everything I could to get there I grew up in a family that loved sport and watched sport and took part in sport but I have to say motorsport and Formula One specifically wasn't particularly one of those sports it was you know something that I knew what was going on but we wouldn't we would sit down and watch football my dad would always watch cricket we'd sit down and watch the Olympics but we didn't sit down specifically to watch races at weekends but when I was at the BBC I came back from maternity leave and it was just when the BBC had got the rights back for Formula One and they'd started a sports news program which went out on the BBC News channel called Inside F1 and I came back from maternity leave and I'd been looking for something different aside from the normal day-to-day bulletins to do and the boss basically came to me and said do you fancy doing this show and I said well it sounds great and it's it's a new challenge it sounds really exciting absolutely but I have to tell you I really don't know very much about Formula One and he said oh it's fine you know you'll learn <laughs> I went yeah of course so my first ever Formula One race I, I hosted a few of the the shows from the studio in London we didn't have a budget that I could go to every race of every season so even though the show happened every race of every season, there were like five or six in a season that I would go to and I would join up with the main BBC race coverage team from BBC Sport. So it was myself and a producer. So my first ever F1 race was Monaco in 2010. And I can hand on heart say I have never been so scared in all my life. I was absolutely petrified. And it was the first outside broadcast I'd ever done. It was the first live show I'd ever done that was unscripted without auto cue. It was the first show I'd ever done that had more than three cameras. I think we had five. And it was about a subject I really didn't know much about. I'd, you know, I will always do my homework and I, I take great pride from knowing what I'm talking about. And I was also kind of following in the footsteps of, of Jake Humphrey because he was the F1 presenter who was doing the main coverage and it was his cameras, it was his director, it was his crew. And then there was me. And so Mark Webber and Eddie Jordan will always have a very special place in my heart. And we did that first show on the, the Red Bull barge in Monaco. Oh, my God, I will never forget like the, the titles running. And we, we did this opening scene. And I could only call it a scene because I was lounging on a deck chair on the top of the barge. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my God, that they're going to say Q and I have to deliver a piece to this camera and then I have to turn to this camera and then I have to get off this deck chair and then I have to walk across the barge and not fall in the pool while I'm still talking and then I have to sit down and then I have to introduce my guests and it was a live half hour show and we had VTs for me to throw to and then I had to interview EJ and Mark and it was amazing but it was absolutely petrifying it was honestly one of the most petrifying half hours of my life and and Mark and Eddie could have put me in a hole but they bless them could see what I was going through (laughs) and like they they each answer they gave me kind of naturally led me to another question 
and we got through it and that was my yeah my first experience of of formula one and it I, I, I fell in love with it. It was incredible. Very different to a lot of the other sports I cover, but you definitely call it a baptism of fire. <laughs> I think it's a good representation of Formula One, effectively, which is just further, more bonkers, more demanding, and uh, borderline acting, actually, in your case, rather than having to present. Yeah, um, but I'll tell you what What made me think I'm going to like this sport. As I, I walked round the paddock for the first time. I've never done that. I walked into the Williams motorhome and I saw a bottle of tomato ketchup and HP sauce on the table. And I talked about it on television that morning because from the outside, I don't think anybody watching F1 and seeing the glitz and the glamour of Monaco, you wouldn't expect a bottle of tomato ketchup on the table. But I was like, oh, there's a bit of normality in this sport. And you know, I now get it. It's very important for a team to be fed well and eat what the team want to eat and have the reminders from home. But yes, that for me was a little piece of, I like this sport. It's the bit where you're like, oh, okay, it's human. It's real. Yeah. And I love actually that if you're lucky enough to wander into different team motorhomes and experience the cooking, you're going to get a flavor of that team. You know, you go into Ferrari, as you would expect, it is Italian food. It's probably the best Italian food you'll ever have. Same from Pirelli. And then, yeah. Actually, my team bucks the trend as a French English team. We actually have Italian chefs, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a, I have a debate with a, there's a golf uh, journalist I know whether golf or Formula One has the best food. I think it's a really tight call. I'm willing to go experiment if I can if I can sneak into a golf tournament. I'm happy to go find out. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to pick and choose. Like as a journalist, you're quite fortunate. You get to pick and choose which meals with which team. Well, unless you get thrown out of a team <laughs> but at the moment I'm all right in terms of still being able to to decide where I want lunch and when <laughs> you've described you know obviously vividly and beautifully your first experience of Formula One you've got incredible experience across so many different sports and you've had to travel for so many different sports as well much like attending a race you've had to be to the Olympics golf tournaments etc in your experience you know how does Formula One how does motorsport actually to give it fair due not just Formula One kind of fit into your view of the wilder sort of sports world because I find that fascinating it's really interesting as a sport in that I think it is still more niche I can travel around the world and there will be more fans who want to talk to me about football still than want to talk to me about Formula One and there are more people who think they are sports fans because they can talk a bit about football than will talk about F1 but there is no doubt people who are motorsport fans are the biggest fans. Like they are all in. There's there's no half measures. They are 110% in it and know it and can talk everything and anything and the history and the current day and what they want to see in the future. And the passion for it is really there. And that's what I think makes it very special and, and really exciting. And I love the fact that in recent times, you know, more and more people have got into it through watching Drive to Survive. Like I've, I've had more people recently, friends who aren't necessarily, you know, school mums who aren't necessarily fans of sport have sat and watched Drive to Survive and have got into it. I feel growing is kind of the wrong phrase because it is growing. It's a, it's, it's a big sport, but it's, I suppose, expanding. It's evolving, isn't it's it? It's evolving, yeah. 
and it's making itself more accessible to more people. It is a massive sport and to be a driver or to work in Formula One is without doubt the pinnacle of motorsport. But certainly the numbers of people getting interested in it and, and the sections of society and the world getting into it are growing. I mean, that's music to my ears. It's nice. <laughs> We're working hard to do it. So, you know, even even at team level, I mean, it's more Formula One's, let's say I'm, I'm putting my fingers up, but Formula One, um, not swearing fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, you know, it's, it's really, so when I um, first came into the sport and I was at the BBC, we wanted to put the show on BBC World, not just on on the news channel. And that didn't work with, rights issues and and you know deals internationally it was one of the reasons when liberty took over formula one and i was at cnn and we kind of had a conversation and said you know we're not trying to do what the race broadcasters do week in week out but hopefully i can service a market and we can attract a different group of people so i find it quite interesting when i'm in the paddock at race weekends the questions I ask aren't necessarily the questions that the drivers are expecting to answer or the questions that the drivers want to answer. I can't talk about tyre pressures, for example, or tyre wear or race strategy if it's going to go out on a channel where there is a large section of that audience who have no idea what we're talking about and frankly aren't interested in what we're talking about. So it's quite an interesting, you kind of have to ahead of time say to a driver, right, this is going to go out in three days time or can we take it speak slightly in more general terms and some are more receptive to that than others and but you know often it's just we are in race mode and we know that this is what we're focused on this weekend and this is what we're talking about but it can be a challenge to try and broaden it out but that that is what the sport needs because the petrol heads know what all that stuff they are going to watch regardless aren't they and it's it's we need to do some of the other bits and pieces to to try and broaden it out one of the things i'll say first is i love it when i'm scheduling an interview with you because i know one that we're going to take slightly longer so it's it's just a more <laughs> but it is it's a, no no i don't mean as in you take ages not at all i mean it, more than likely it will be a one-on-one -on -one sit down interview because again that's the best way to convey what you're you know to the audience that you're trying to reach it's not going to be a 30 second q a standing up you know as part of a normal broadcast and also because the driver is going to have to listen and is going to have to think about what they're saying but more crucially they're not going to be answering a question that they've answered seven times already that day some of them are so focused and because we do these interviews normally during a race weekend they are obviously focused on what they're going to do on the Sunday but it will feel like a break or it will feel like a nice way to end the day normally we'll do this on a media day and they'll come back to me and go well that was that was just lovely that was just such a nice you know way and you know such an interesting conversation and I yeah it's it's always a highlight for me well you hope so but it doesn't always go to plan <laughs> actually that probably leads me to a really good next question which is one I love asking people especially in a job as yours that's just so public what's the biggest misconception about your job <laughs> um uh, I, I'm sure everybody says it that the glamour yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the most glamorous job in the world and my God, don't get me wrong. There are some ludicrous moments. Like, um, I know I've mentioned Monaco, but, you know, I sat and watched a, a Champions League final 
with a team principal and his family in a yacht in the harbour in Monaco a couple of years ago. I mean, ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. But the reality, 95% of the time. The flip side of that is Suzuka last year with the typhoon. And the Grand Prix in, in Suzuka last year was going on the same time as the Rugby World Cup. And we had a team who were in Tokyo who were there covering the Rugby World Cup. And there was myself and my team in a hotel in Suzuka. And it's fair to say Suzuka is not the most developed town in the world. It's an industrial town, isn't it? Focused on car manufacturing. And the hotel is very basic. And we had this safety briefing. <laughs> when we knew the typhoon was about to hit, there was a call from the, the bosses and the, the security team saying, just in case you get caught out, this is what you need to do. This is how we advise you behave over the next 24, 48 hours. Because of course, the, the whole day had been called off, hadn't it? We were all back in our hotel rooms in lockdown. And we had our team in Tokyo in a five-star hotel with a spa and like six restaurants. And then there was myself and my team in our Suzuka hotel. It's the only hotel room I've ever been in where you had to put coins in the TV to make it work. I couldn't get the coins to get my TV to work. And our security guy said, we recommend you move the bed if it's under a window, we recommend you move the bed away from the window and put your pillows at the opposite end of the bed. I kid you not, my bed moved about six centimetres. <laughs> and, and that was as far as I could move it. And they're like, don't, you know, don't sit too close to the window. I said, well, where do I sit? I haven't got anywhere else. And they said, well, how about the bathroom? And I <laughs> <laughs> we had one of those Japanese bathrooms with the bath that is about a third of the size of a normal European bath. And I actually couldn't stand in the bath because my head hit the ceiling. So it, yeah, it was it was a slightly comic moment. And I had a hilarious conversation with Andrew Benson over the microwave as we were heating up our food that we'd bought from the 7-Eleven because the hotel didn't have a restaurant. Um, actually, Ferrari was staying in that hotel and they'd taken their own coffee machine. So we did have good coffee. But I have to say that was really the epitome of uh, Formula One glamour. Obviously, shed experience, my hotel was just as great. And But actually, it makes it. It was obviously so bad. But what a story and what a thing to live through. You know, I love it. But I, I've learned from this experience, actually. And um, I now bring a small camping hand pression coffee <laughs> machine so that I can make decent coffee. All I need is a kettle just to get a bit of warm water and then I'm good. <laughs> that is after Suzuka in 2019. I learned that I needed to bring my own coffee machine. I think that is one of the genuine things that I've learned over the years. We get to do some incredibly glamorous things, but there's a whole lot of it that really isn't. But you can pretty much get through everything. And so I kind of am, it would be the, one of my bits of advice to anyone, become self-sufficient. You know, it drives my mum nuts. She, she always says, you need to ask for help more. And I'm like, but if I'm on the road, I'm just getting in somebody's way because everybody has their own things that they're dealing with. So I never travel light. <laughs> <laughs> I will pack my suitcase and I will fill my suitcase, but I will make sure that, you know, I have got my hair straighteners with me if I know we're going to have a really long day on the road and I'm going to have to sort my hair out. I will have a change of clothes in case I spill something down it. I will have a massive load of 
protein bars and nuts not actually nuts are bad if you're going to be on tv because they get stuck in your teeth but mm. bits of food like jelly sweets i'll take my little medical kit just in case the worst thing for me is if i've got to stop somebody else and say oh could you help me with this you know can you help me with that so yeah make sure you're pretty self-sufficient whatever happens I'm nodding and I say that with the huge privilege of having access to catering and, you know, being fed and watered very well when I'm at the track. But I still, as, as far as the hotel side is concerned, I still bring things. Do you know what? All that are just going to bring me joy because the days are long and it's hard. And if actually being able to make my own coffee, knowing that I'm going to have a really nice espresso in the morning, if that's going to cheer me up on the other side of the world after three weeks away, I'm all for it. Yeah, that's not to say that I haven't been known to ask a team. Like I've had dresses splits, like the zips have split. So I've had to borrow a bit of team kit. When we were doing the circuit, I had to wear the same clothes for the whole week of filming. And so generally it would be five or six days in the same clothes, which depending on where you are can be really grim. But there was a, I can't remember which race it was. I had my dark blue jeans on and I sat on a barrier to do a link only to realise that the barrier had only just been newly painted. So I had <laughs> massive white stripes across my backside. So I had to call into a team and say, what have you got that might, so we've got some bit of something from a garage. It is amazing what you can do with the resources in a Formula One paddock. <laughs> I never feel like anything's impossible because, I mean, between everyone's knowledge and all the things that we carry actually let's talk about success because we've talked about you know pulling things out of difficult situations we've you know managing to do a, a show for the first time live with five different cameras with just Mark Webber and Eddie Jordan to get you out of trouble which is quite impressive across all of the things that you do and especially with the challenges that we've had recently how are you measuring success for yourself especially when you're in so many different sports as well is it about the different experiences is it when a camera finishes recording, you know, you've nailed it. Is it a particularly amazing interview or is it more, you know, looking at what you've done so far? Are you, are you good at looking back at your career so far and taking stock? I'm trying to be better at that. And I, I forget sometimes how long I've been doing what I'm doing. It, we had an intern last year and I realised I've been doing my job longer than he had been alive which was a real moment of stock take. You kind of think that's insane because I don't feel that old. <laughs> I really don't feel that old. I am so grateful to do the job that I do and I still get super excited to do the job that I do, even if it's, you know, walking into the paddock for the first time on a race week. It doesn't even have to be race day. I feel privileged to be there and I say to a lot of the guys you know, in, on our team coming in who are getting grumpy about something or frustrated that it's not going their way, I will say, just look at where you are and what we get to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Even if we do six races a season, that is six more races than 99% of motorsport fans will ever get to go to in their lives. And look at how we get to spend those race weekends and, and what we're doing and what we're seeing and it's part of history whether it's race five of a season or race 18 of a season that race and what happens on that weekend will be part of history and you know there will be millions of people watching it around the world and you'll be able to say you were there and you'll have a funny story that you bumped into somebody coming out of a motorhome or 
you know, you saw somebody being a bit grumpy and throwing a bottle of water when they shouldn't. And, you know, it's a real privilege to be there and, and to witness those situations. And that for me is it at Formula One. It's walking into an empty stadium on the day of a Champions League final or ahead of a, you know, a World Cup match. That feeling doesn't go away. And it's something I've really missed. And I actually, I got really emotional talking about it ahead of our, our Christmas show. And, you know, we, we asked that we'll ask the question, what are you most looking forward to in 2021? And just that feeling of this is a moment when you walk into an event is something I can't wait to witness um, and feel uh, again. I think on a more day-to-day basis, for me, it's important I'm respected by my colleagues and my peers, and I want people to feel that, you know, I'm good at my job, and I, I will never go into an interview being underprepared. It's I probably spend far too long doing my prep and my research, but it's something I've always, through even through school, really, I stayed up too late doing my revision and my essays and but it's something I've always taken pride in. So that certainly looking, you know, looking around and feeling that somebody will will think, oh, you've done a good job there and, and you've reflected. Uh, you know, if, if I'm doing an interview, I want the person I'm interviewing to feel that I'm going to portray them in the right way and tell their story in the right way and not have treated them unfairly. You know, there are moments in interviews where you will feel somebody will say something and you will feel, wow, you know, that is a headline. You know, the interview I did with Bernie Eccleston last year about racism and diversity, you kind of sit there and think, and I was, I was sitting here in this hallway on my own. <laughs> Normally you would have a camera crew and a production team around you and you would feel in the room their reaction to it. But I was sitting, literally sitting here on my own. And it was a very, a really strange moment. I didn't quite know where to look. Those moments happen and you think, wow, that's, that's a headline. That's a story. I will always have that news sense, whatever I'm doing. And there is always a part of me that in the right place at the right time wants to be getting those headlines, wants the truth to come out and that story to come out. But you have to gauge what you're doing. And, you know, that is not every situation that you conduct an interview in that way. So just conduct my job and and my life in the right way, I suppose. Do you ever sit through an interview and actually finish and say, it may have been a perfectly pleasant experience, but you're well aware that at the end of it, actually, you you haven't gotten anything in the sense of the person said words. But, you know, if you were to write it up, there's nothing in there. Um, some people are masters of saying yes. absolutely nothing. And they, they pride themselves in saying absolutely nothing in an interview or not finishing a sentence. And that's where I have to earn my money. And you come up with different ways of asking questions and different ways of approaching the subjects like I remember I did an interview ahead of the London 2012 Olympics where there was the big question mark over what was going to happen at the opening ceremony who was going to light the Olympic flame and it was all shrouded in secrecy if you remember and we were actually um, our studio was right next to the stadium and for like, for like 10 days beforehand, we'd heard the rehearsals going on and we'd seen bits. But there was a big thing of, you know, please do not give our secrets away. We want it to be a surprise. We want the world to sit up and take notice. So I think it was two days before that I uh, was doing an interview with David Beckham, who was rumoured to be lighting the flame. And we were in a room and there was three interviews. And he did the first interview and it was like, you, you've got 
four and a half minutes or something with him and I heard the first interview and they were pressing him on you know are you going to have a role what are you going to do said nothing didn't give anything away second interview same thing happened and I thought well I can't just ask the same questions because we're all going to run it at the same time and it's a bit so I thought how can I ask these questions and get something (laughs) so rather than asking normal questions I basically went quick fire so I said to him have you got a role at the opening ceremony yes he said I said uh, does your role involve footballs no does it involve animals no does it involve children no (laughs) and then I said does it involve a flame and he went yes yes I think there is a flame aboard and he used the word aboard and his face like he looked at his agent and he looked at me and I was like, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to. And I thought I could press here, but I'm not going to. And I moved on to something else. And then afterwards they were like, look, you can use the word yes, but you have to drop the word aboard. Like, please, please, please do not run the word aboard. And if you remember, he was on a boat which went down the Thames with the flame um, but it was, yeah, it was. And so we didn't run the word aboard. We said, yeah, we used the, the phrase yes. And then we moved on. But it was it was really funny because you hadn't expected like he had to answer something. But he just and one of the rare moments in his life. He just, uh, yeah, got a little he bit carried away with it. But it was funny. That's amazing. In those moments, and actually in, in all the facets of your work, you know, does it get quite stressful? Do you suffer with stress anyway, just in terms of the role that you have? And then, yeah, if you do, how do you cope? Um, yeah, I don't think I suffer from stress per se. I'm, I've always been quite practical in everything in kind of life. I will just put my head down and you know compartmentalize and take things step by step and I'll draw up a list stupidly organized you know I have people laugh at me I have the biggest file of I'll show you my file facts I know we can't see it on the podcast but I have the biggest file (laughs) I wish you could see it that's amazing (laughs) um like my life is in my file of acts and I will write a million lists the only time that I get stressed really of feeling like I'm unprepared and I'm not going to be able to put my best face forward or get caught out or I might get caught out with something. I hate that feeling. So I will always have done mega prep and make sure that that's not the case. You know, sometimes we're pushed with deadlines and and actually at, there's times I probably do, you know, if I've got 10 links to remember and I know we've got 20 minutes, sometimes I'm quite good at just, you know, I will bash those out. I'm not very good at the unknown you prepare very much don't you to try and get rid of that so if I'm going into something and I don't know the lie of the land the unknown is not good for me I take it a step at a time I think that's I'm quite practical I'm, pro- I'm probably quite blunt oh yeah I know my team would say I'm quite, <laughs> quite blunt <laughs> quite practical just put my head down you know I'm not somebody who shouts necessarily but I'm somebody who goes quiet you know you're in trouble if I go quiet Yes, I have that reaction as well. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But I end up taking it to the letter. So if I am genuinely, and I'm not a quiet person normally, so if I'm quiet, you know, you're in trouble. With so many, so many different aspects of what you do in play, how do you balance work and life? Taking away last year, you travel a lot. So how do you manage your family and your friends' expectations in terms of when you're going to be available? 
I'm not sure there is any balance. Um, <laughs> it's a proper juggle. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. It's it's a mega juggle, um, and I have loved being at home far more than. That's how, it sounds awful to say far more than I thought, but I really, you know, I love being at home. I love being with my daughter and baking and I'm not so good at the arts and crafts, but baking and cooking and we've been doing our workouts and the daily walks around the park, that stuff I've really, really embraced and actually not missed the airport side of it as much as I thought I would and the travel side of it. Did you end up realising quite how tired you were before we had to stop? Because that was my revelation. I knew I was tired. I didn't realise the extent that international travel and sort of the pace that we naturally follow with our work. I didn't actually realise the extent of the effect that it had. We had got to the point where we'd normalised the fact that you spent a night on a plane and the fact that you get three hours on a plane, you tick that off and say, oh, that was a night's sleep. That's craziness, isn't it? You know, you fly through the night, land at 5 a.m. and then crack on with your day as if nothing's happened. Um, and you wonder why you get a few wrinkles and don't feel so great. We had got to that point, haven't we, that that was normal. And so I think it will be very interesting to see if we go back to that. I can't believe we will go back to that in in that degree. Or maybe that's me being naive. But, you know, going back to your original question, my planning comes into play. I have a, a great nanny who lives with me. I've always had a nanny. That's the only way I can do it. I have an amazing family who are incredibly supportive with, you know, with my daughter and coming to to look after her and stepping in and and Molly my daughter is I love the fact that she sees me traveling the world and knows about Turkmenistan when she was about four and I think her teacher at school was like I've never heard a child of four talk about Turkmenistan before and you know wants to visit Moscow because I spent so much time there for the Rugby World Cup and you know wants to come to Tokyo to the the Olympics and I think that's absolutely fantastic and and I take a great deal of pride from that but obviously there's a lot of stuff that I miss which I hate missing so it's a juggle and a balance and I think you just have to do the best you can really and um, I'm not the only person in that position. Actually, there's a great camaraderie, isn't there? Because so many have to travel for their job, sometimes some odd places. I love the fact that golf have actually, uh, the European tour has a creche that travels with it. And they have the same staff at their creche that travel around the world. So golfers can go with their wives and their children and you can take the children in and out of the creche kind of when you want or if there's an event in the evening then the same staff work as babysitters and I think it's an amazing idea that obviously when your children get to school there's an added complication it's not as easy as that but I do think it's such a smart idea and it's not just for the players it's for it's for everybody who works on the tour I think it's such a great idea that so many other sports could take on board. I love that. And it's fully acknowledging the amount of time it's taking people away from their homes, actually. I think that's very clever. I love that. How do you keep yourself interested and moving forward? Because it could all blend into one thing quite easily, but you always bring something new. I've never seen you do the same thing twice. I'm not just (laughs) paying compliments here. This is well deserved. You You don't phone it in. You always keep it fresh and you always think differently. Having heard two interviews before you that were exactly the same, you you didn't ask the same question. 
I mean, my God, in lockdown, I'm I'm learning the whole of technology. I'm learning every second of every day. You're now a cameraman, a sound person, a technician, an IT specialist. There's so many different things you can talk about. And the one thing that I always remember when I'm when I'm doing my job is the people I'm speaking to are normal human beings. Their lives, they do have lives outside the sport that they're doing. They do have interests in what's going on in the world or the news or what have you. And people at home are going through whatever they're going through and whatever is happening at the time. And so it's just I always think it's about finding that common ground. I don't necessarily ask the most technical questions, but I will try and ask something that interests me or I think will interest my friends or and my God, it's not all me. I generally if I'm doing an interview, I will have a producer and and we have a team and we'll have a discussion about what we're talking about and, um, you know, how can we do it? And, and some of the most talented people I've worked with are the people I've worked in, worked on our motorsport stuff with. And it's, it's a great challenge. As a sport, motorsport media are some of the most talented people across the board. And it's quite a small group of people from the British broadcasters, particularly. They're the ones, obviously, I've got the most experience with. It's quite a small group of people who work in it, but they're so supremely talented and the bar is high and you want to make sure that what you're producing lives up to expectations and it's not just from the fellow broadcasters but from you know from the teams and you don't want a driver to be sitting down for an interview and think oh this is going to be a bit average so I better not I'm not going to bother making much of an effort like you want you want it to be good it benefits everybody doesn't it and I it's actually one of the things with Formula One that I think is so noticeable. Every person involved in the sport, whatever role, understands the importance of what everybody else in the sport does and how as a community it works together and is all working towards the bigger picture. I don't think that's not the case with other sports, but just maybe the nature of F1 and how tight-knit it is and, and how everybody travels together. You really get that sense of community, which I, I, I think is brilliant. I love it. I would that's exactly the word I would have used tight knit traveling community is exactly how it feels to me and and I, I do feel like you you encourage each other despite even if you're working for other teams or other entities there's that sort of commonality where you're bringing each other up if you need to because regardless of whether you're competing broadcasters competing teams the person that does your job at another team is probably the only other person that can understand if you're having a low moment or equally a high moment and and everyone's there for each other i it really impresses me how everyone's competing against each other but actually everybody's there and the first person you'll get congratulating you if something goes well is your biggest competitor and it's really special in that regard i think um and it's i don't think it's the norm I don't know, but I don't expect rival football teams to be texting each other the same way that perhaps we do. I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I don't I'll have to find it. someone. I'll find someone and ask, yeah. I will. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody that would like to enter these industries and work in the same way that you do? And also, do you have a piece of advice that you've been given in the past that you've kept and that you still use? I always find these two things are, are helpful for most people. Yeah, I, mean, I think I would say... The best bit of advice I would give, I think, is to not expect it to be easy. Don't take a no as a reason to give up. You know, keep going at it. And even if you don't get the job you think you want, but were to be offered something else, take it. Because as a as a, an industry, it's it's changing all the time, and the people who have the best careers and 
have the longest careers in, in journalism and media are the people who have the background. You know, they, they don't just want to be on television. They are the people who have worked their way up from you know being a runner to being a producer to being a writer. And um, for me, I that was I went in. I I did loads of work experience at, at, at Sky. I then got a job on the tennis department. I was a an editorial assistant. I was an assistant producer. I used to cut the the music features that would the openers and closers that started and ended programs. Oh. I would do the features. I then moved to Sky Sports News. I did the ticker headlines, which I was so bad at because every, <laughs> everybody sees every mistake, you know, doing the side panels with the tables and, and the fixture lists and the scores. I then worked on the news desk. I then became an on-the-road producer, all the time knowing I wanted to be a reporter, presenter, correspondent. So I then kind of started, I'd go out with reporters as their producers and I would write my own version of their packages. Um, and I would say in a quiet moment, you know, what do you think of this? And, and But every single piece of the jigsaw has some part in what I do today. And, I, you know, I used to be able to know how to run a sat truck. <laughs> so I could, I, now I'd be absolutely lost if I was stuck in a field now and had to send stuff home I was I would definitely need a producer to help me with my technological know-how but it's I'm, I'm very aware it's a it's a hole that I've kind of I've you know that those bits that I used to really pride myself on I'm struggling on the technological side today but yeah every piece of the jigsaw of media is interlocked and you will always find something in a, in a role that will help you with where you want to be so that's what I would absolutely say. And and keep going. And be yourself is the other one. Remember who you are and who you want to be. And how are you even supposed to bring confidence to the table if you can't be yourself? Whether you don't feel like you can be or you're not being allowed to be. It's the only way you can grow confidence is to know who you are and be allowed to be that person. And to have a conversation on an equal footing with, you know, some, if, if my job is to is to interview people, be that yeah, a, a small child who's at their first Formula One race or Sebastian Coe, the head of the IAAF or Bernie Eccleston or Chase Carey or whatever, you have to feel comfortable that, that you can do that and hold your own and hold those people to account. My final question after those very wise words. Amanda, what are you looking forward to? Well, tonight is Friday night. <laughs> Friday night uh, means we have like a little, we're, we're pretending even in lockdown that it's like party nights. We've got fajitas for dinner, which I love. Right. We love fajitas on a Friday night, um, maybe with our Mexican hats. I am really looking forward to getting back to a live sporting event, I have to say. I don't know where it will be. I don't know when it will be. I don't know which sport it will be. But I really do hope um, that this year is the year I'll be able to do it. Because that's, you know, ultimately I love people and I'm nosy and I want to have a chat with somebody. I know. And that's why I do what I do. I love speaking to people and interacting and, you know, telling their stories and, and hearing other people's perspectives on things. And I really miss that face to face contact. Interaction. Yes, not contact. <laughs> I say, having experienced it to some level last year when obviously we restarted racing I was giddy I was mm. child level overexcited needing an, a nap 
giddy. It was a very strange moment. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I feel like this is the most we've managed to talk in months as well. So it's been a real treat. No worries. And I hope, I I do hope we get to see each other in a paddock soon. I hope so too. Fingers crossed. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Leave a review if you can, tell your friends, post about it on social media. It all means so much and it really helps new people find our little podcast. I read every message and every mention, as you know, and it means a huge deal. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandea, P-A-N-D-E-A. And there's now a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly should you wish to. It takes an awful lot of coffee to make this show, as you can imagine. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.